Our panel of break-fix petrolheads are back for another rousing what-should-I-buy debate. Using unique shopping criteria, they are challenged to find our first-time collector the best vehicle that will make their friends go, where do you get that? Or what the hell is wrong with you? At the next Cars and Coffee. To quote one of our fans, what's it like having to explain to everybody? No, it's a fake one. Wouldn't you rather have a real any other car? And we're here to answer that very question with our Petrolhead panel to settle another what should I buy debate. This time, it's style over substance. It's sizzle and no steak with the posers, replicas, and kit cars. Joining us tonight are Mark Shank, our 90s expert, Don Weberg from Garage Style Magazine, William Big Money Ross from the Exotic Car Marketplace, author of Human in the Machine, Jeff Willis, along with Mountain Man Dan. And like all What Should I Buy episodes, we have some shopping criteria. This time, the price, the performance, and the points don't matter because if you don't look good, then no one looks good. Our panel of extraordinary petrol head panelists are challenged to find our first-time collector something that will make their friends go, seriously? At the next Cars and Coffee. We are going to venture down a path that has been brought up many times on this show before our fans of What Should I Buy should know that we've mentioned over and over again about kit cars and replicas. Don, it's really your fault that we're here. What the hell's a poser? Oh, good. Throw me under the bus. Thanks. You know, it's a good question. What is a poser? Well, I think the first time I brought it up on your show, and I've always kind of wondered it, as you all know very well, I'm a huge fan of the Chrysler TC by Maserati. I have secretly often wondered, if you drive that car, are you just an SL poser? Are you an Alante poser? Are you a Riata poser? Is the Riata a poser? What is a poser? Is it someone trying to be like someone else? Let's take the Cadillac Alante, for example. The advertising doesn't directly go after the Mercedes SL, but it does instead show the SL in the background. A big, beautiful, bright red Alante and this little gray SL in the background looking ever so easy. Eastern European. Is the Alante trying to pose as the next SL? And in that, does it make it a poser? Now, that being said, the Alante was introduced for the 1987 automobile year. Is somebody going to pull his card yet? (laughs) (laughs) He's mixing up his adjectives. I think he said beautiful, (laughs) but I think he meant hideous. Oh, no, you didn't. What he did is he added (laughs) ER to (laughs) 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 P-O-S. All jokes aside, when you brought this up, Don, we talked about posers. I immediately went in a completely different direction. And you have hit on something. You struck a nerve. It's a car trying to be something else or a marketing department trying to give you this illusion that this car will satisfy a need or a void in your life because maybe you can or can't afford that SL Mercedes or the 7 Series BMW or whatever it is that you're really lusting after. So we're talking posers. Is it just a car or is it the individual that dresses in all the garb? I don't think our lawyers want us to focus on the individuals. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the 80s with those Corvette jackets and the Trans Am jackets, the nice silver ones and all that stuff. And any Corvette owner has got all his Corvette gear. Anything's got his jeans hugged up to his tits. This is said by a Fiero owner who told everybody was really a Trans Am jacket, not a Fiero yeah. jacket. <laughs> That's all I was just wondering. I think we're going to focus on the cars more than anything, <laughs> but this is going to turn into a really interesting discussion about a niche corner of the collector car market that I don't think a lot of people spend time looking in because maybe they're hunting for that rare M3 or that particular 911 or you know some year Corvette numbers matching or otherwise. There's some real dynamic 
diamonds in the rough here that really haven't been exposed and the values around these kit cars replicas and so on are quite affordable oh definitely if you do a lot of digging and especially deciding what you want out of your kit car there's a plethora of options now obviously back in the 80s it was either okay you put it on a fiero chassis or you know a beetle chassis what have you that was about it now i mean you have the kit car and with the passing that law to is like they can sell you the whole basic kit and caboodle i mean they're building the whole two-frame chassis there's a ton of them out there and they're doing very well and you got everything from track day specific stuff that should go to track but it can be street driven but then you got the other stuff that's on the lower end but i mean there's so many options today of what you can get as a kit car that the quality level is pretty high it's almost like the ikea of the car world in a sense because you basically buy it all it arrives on your doorstep and you assemble it by the list of a goes to a b goes to b exactly you guys might remember a print ad from the 70s and 80s for the gazelle automobile you remember that it was always a full page ad or a half page ad and it's a great little picture of this semi concocted an ssk mercedes and an mg had a baby and this was it but the parts are on the floor and there's a father and a son and they're working on this thing and they're in the garage and it really is kind of a great thing but you know it was all built in the fiero chassis or the vw beetle those were huge chassis going around and then go back to the dune buggy for god's sake we could even bring up the myers manx if we wanted to and how many posers if you want to call them that were sprung from the dune buggy concept i used to work for a magazine back in the day we had a trade thing going on with garage style it was called kit car builder do any of you remember that magazine yeah learning from them they had some amazing amazing coach built kit cars when you go back and you look at the history of kit cars etc it actually goes back believe it or not to the 1800 when you start researching this stuff it started in england there was a guy who literally had what they call a drop down kit and you ordered a drop down kit and he sent you all the parts and pieces to put it together i think publications like that actually help educate everybody they educated me i had no idea that those cars existed just having a magazine out there for a kit car builder i mean it just shows there's a big market out there big enough to support a magazine if you went down a rabbit hole looking around, and not all of them are going to be online or have websites, but I think it would be shocking if you look to see, especially around the world now, you, know, you don't have to worry about just the United States, but right. there are hundreds, if not thousands of these little boutiques doing five, eight, ten cars a year. That's it. You know, they're not building thousands. They're doing just small things and they're all over the place. In preparation for this episode, if anybody Google search, there's lists, top 20 kit car manufacturers of 2023. I mean, as current as today, there's at least 20 manufacturers out there building something that you could be assembling in your garage or based on a car that you might already have in your stable. So it's kind of interesting that it's a community that doesn't market itself well. It doesn't advertise as loud as the big manufacturers. It's been thriving for a hundred years. If you think about going back to the original custom coach builders, these kits have been around to Don's point forever. Fast forwarding to the 70s, the 60s, if you really think about modernism, I kind of think that the Myers-Manx was the original sort of kit car because you could buy it assembled or you could buy it where you put it together yourself. You could do it either way. That kit alone, there were so many people that went out and replicated it under different names. Nowadays, if you find an actual legit Myers-Manx, it's worth easily, you know, a lot more than the knockoff. There were so many others made that it's hard to find a legit one. I was just at a show the other weekend and uh, someone was a legit one. I was like pretty surprised. It was shocking to see a legit one because I think the legitimate ones, there's only like 600 or 700 of them that are legitimate, true Myers-Manx cars. The yeah. rest, 
thousands of them are all the knockoffs because unfortunately Bruce Meyer didn't do what he was supposed to do. You know, as they said, he was brilliant getting that stuff put together. So he was a horrible businessman and he just didn't, the patent wives and whatnot. So he just basically got ripped off and everyone else making them. So he didn't really make any money on them, but he set the trend. And like even Don said, I think that's where it kind of started from there. There are absolutely great things to explore out there. Even though they fall into these categories, like if we're talking about stuff, you know, affordability, a self-build caterum. It's a kit car. It's a great track day type thing. You know, it's really cool. It's insurable. You're going to die if it hits anything. And another example of has a large proliferation of knockoffs. So officially Lotus had sold it off to Caterham and then they built the Super 7 from 1961, 62-ish up until today. And they still sell it as a kit that you can assemble. There's even Top Gear episodes about could they build one fast enough as the guys, you know, traverse continental Europe and all this stuff. But then you have all these other Super 7 knockoffs all the Honda powered ones, like the low cost. There's like an arm's length of names where they just basically took that simple Lotus 7 design and then let's put an Ecotech in it. Let's put a this in it. Let's put a that in it. We'll change the tube frame a little bit. And we'll call it this other thing. And so like the Myers Manx, I think there's a lot of these little roller skate Lotus 7s running around or quote unquote, you know, knockoff Lotus 7s running around out there. If you want to say knockoff vehicles, you'd have to basically say almost every vehicle made in China because it's a knockoff of another <laughs> Uh, that's a slippery slope, Daniel. <laughs> True. <laughs> the Aura Punk Cat, which is a duplicate of the old Beetle, you know, stuff like that. Like, urgh. That's like the Mercury Mountaineer posing to be a Ford Explorer, right? So we like to call that badge engineering. And I like the fact that you went there, Jeff, because that happens all the time. And GM is notorious for it, right? Competing with itself. Ford does it too, but GM is more so than anybody. It's like, here's the same thing six times. We'll call it, you know, the terrain, the envoy and the trailblazer and the this and that. And you're like, come on, guys, it's all the same truck. Then there's other companies kind of like you were saying, Caterham. That was one that I remembered. And then there's, I don't know if you guys have heard of Superformant. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite newer ones that they remake the Daytona, the Cobra, the GT40, the GT, and they do a fantastic job. And so it's like, besides the nostalgia, sometimes the ones that they make mechanically are actually better than the original. That's true. I've heard really Really good things oh, yeah. about the Superformance GT40 as well. It brings up an interesting thought that flashed through my head as we were talking about the Myers Manx and using the Beetle as a platform. Do we want to include the old American hot rods in this? Because essentially you got guys in the backyard in the garage taking a chassis from something, taking an engine from something, taking a body from something, slapping it all together. Kind of got a kit car. It's just they didn't get that name. They got known as the hot rod because of their engine. So let's just argue about what a hot rod is then. Right? Here he goes. Yeah, exactly. Here he goes. <laughs> I can see where you're going with that, Don, but I think that's an episode unto itself, actually, talking about rat rods and hot rods and chop tops and the real customization of 30s, 40s, and 50s classics. So I think they're exempt from this discussion. We're looking more for, like William was alluding to, these Fiero conversions. So those are the cars we're really focusing on. And, you know, going back to what Jeff was talking about, Superformance, there's people doing the Porsches as well. The Beck, for example, is one of them. The Beck Spider is awesome. Yeah, there's a guy in the San Fernando Valley, I forget his company name, but he does some spectacular coupes, 356s and speedsters. He does some great stuff. So that's another one of those super formants. Could the Hennessy Venom be considered a kit car? So the Hennessy's a boutique um, manufacturer, right? That's a okay. whole different classification of car. Well, 
I think that'd be more like Shelby. Yeah, I mean, but going to Don's point, though, in regards to, like, going back to the 40s and 50s and that stuff, building the hot rods and stuff, you have the kits now for that. You can buy the fiberglass body. Factory 5's got a really nice oh, one yeah. there that you can buy. Mm-hmm. Putting modern running gear under it, disc brakes, whatnot. And normally people, you know, they're buying the Ford, but they put the Chevy motor in it. So you can buy the fiberglass bodies from God. I think there's a ton of them out there that you can get them. It can't be considered a, a kit, but it's more, I guess, we go along the lines of clone. Because I know the first generation Camaros they're building actual steel bodies again. And they're even doing the same with a lot of the early Jeeps and stuff where you can get an entire tub that's not fiberglass. It's they make them in aluminum and steel for the Jeeps. Mustangs too, yeah. A lot of companies got the rights from the factory themselves to rebuild those. Dynacorn is doing the Mustangs. Blazers, the Broncos, all of these are starting to come back out with just to buy the body and you start rebuilding it. Like with the Mustangs, there's a guy down in Florida, Revology. You know, he's taking the Dynacorns and building the car, but then he's also doing and electric. So there's quite a few of them out there that are utilizing those remade or whatever you want to call them. I mean, they got all the prints, everything from the factory itself. They got licensed for it and spot on. Bam, there you go. So it's like, do you want to replace some panels and have original? You just want to take the chassis and drop a new one on or put it on a new chassis? I mean, there's a lot of things you could do. It's, that kind of opens up a whole nother can of worms in regards to, I mean, is that considered a kit car then? Is that a repop using a term from your world, Don? Now, what William was bringing to the program there with all the Dynacorn, et cetera. So you go to the guy in Florida and you say, okay, I want this, but I want this engine. I want this suspension. I want this. I want this. I want this. All of a sudden, I think that guy in Florida doesn't have the marketing cachet, doesn't have whatever, but all of a sudden he's in the same swimming pool as Singer. Oh, yeah. Because they're making a bespoke Mustang or they're making a bespoke Bronco or bespoke Camaro, Firebird, whatever it might be. They're doing this sort of knockoff, if you call it a knockoff, but it's the same basic ball of wax. So again, I think you're getting into custom coach building, I think is what you're doing. You know, and like Jeff said, you know, Superformance does a phenomenal job, but you know, there's an outfit up in Michigan, RC. CR, they also own Super SLC. You know, they do a 917. They do a GT40. They do a 962. They do a couple of them. Phenomenal work. I mean, you get the right engineers. You got CAD work. You got the right equipment. You think you can build these things. What level do you want to be at? Do you want to spend 25, 30 grand? Do you want to spend 100, 200 grand? And what do you want to have? One of the first of those, if you want to go to the neoclassics, you know, you had Clinet in the 1970s. Clinet Coachworks, I think it was called. And they had the Clinet Series 1, 2, 3 and four. And they only built about 400 cars from what I understand. If you ever watched the old show, Matt Houston, he drove an Excalibur. They all kind of looked the same. You had the Excalibur, you had the Clinet. Zimmer. Later on, you had the Spartan 2, which was kind of a spinoff. It had to be called Spartan 2 because over in England, they already had Spartan 1. You know, nobody even knows about that car, but that was built on a Triumph Herald chassis, I believe that was. But they all had that same SSK porch kind of look to them. You know what I like about these cars, going just specifically to the Neo classics is they are really unique. They are a little weird, but like all of us have been saying, you get that modern running gear. These were built in the 70s, so they're now classic, neo-classic cars, which is really kind of interesting. There is sort of a bubbling going on in the market. You see these Clinets, you see these Quicksilvers, you see these Zimmers. They're all going up in value. And what's funny is the Zimmers, they were largely built on Cougar Mustang Mark Seven bodies. You can see the door, you can see the, the C-pillar and the B-pillar 
popular. Back when they were new, I remember living in LA, they're not all over the place, but we had a fair number of them running around. I remember laughing at them as a kid thinking these things are a joke. But isn't it funny how the joke has turned? And today, here I am so many years later looking at these things online saying, you know, it might be kind of cool to have one of those cars because they're so weird. And these were the true tried, we're going to put this together. We're going to try and make a manufacturing. Look, the Clinet, they had crystal ashtrays. They had etched glass. They had pinstriping that literally took something like 17 hours to apply to the body. If you see where I'm going with this, these are the same practices Rolls-Royce preaches. Right. The same level of attention to detail that Rolls-Royce and Bentley put into their car, arguably the best cars, especially back in the day. When you look at that level of detail and you can pick up a mint condition Clinet for, oh, I don't know, 20, 25,000, you're getting a lot of car because that car sold new for roughly 80. But here's the problem I have with that, Don. When you look at those cars, and they all look like Cruella DeVille cartoon gangster cars, yeah. right? It's sort of like buying a conversion van. All this detail and all this extra and all this stuff and this malaise that goes along with it. And yet it's worth nothing and nobody really wants it. That's mm -hmm. the problem. And I'm glad you brought up the Clinet because that was one of those cars for me that actually fit in the poser category because it isn't trying to be a Rolls or a Duesenberg or anything. It's just trying to be itself. And some of those were based on Beatles and really these Frankenstein chassis where they'll take them and spin them around and do all this crazy stuff. So you're right. They're oddballs. I was trying to think of this as like, what's the traditional poser mobile that might be starting to turn a corner? The H2 jumped out at me. A Hummer? Yeah, the H2. Yeah, because it's not a real Hummer. It's Because it's yeah. not a real Hummer. Good one. So in yes, the original, back in the it's day, it was just a jumped up Tahoe. It was a square box. It pretended to be an H1, but now you go back, would you rather have that Tahoe from that same year or would you rather have the H2? I think you would pick the H2. So that's actually a fair, fair point. And those H2s aren't worth anything either. You know, they do have kind of that cool boxy look. It's a Tahoe. You can do anything to it that you could do to a Tahoe. I'll counter that though. Would you rather have an H2 or a Chevy Avalanche? Oh boy. Now wait a minute. It's all garbage if you bring here. up the Avalanche, you gotta bring up the AXT. <laughs> I refute the premise. The Avalanche isn't a poser mobile. It's just a sophisticated purse choice. Isn't it posing as a full size pickup truck? And what the hell is it? <laughs> on a half ton chassis. It's the Ren Chero or El Dorado of our time. It's a classy automobile. When I was at Motor Trend, those things came out and the guy over at Truck Trend had a great description for what that really is. It's an SUV with a birth defect. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. Uh-huh. Because if you look at it, it is a Tahoe that had its rear end hacked off to turn into a modern Subaru Brat. You can't use that bed for anything. It's no. not useless. You put your refrigerator in there and that's it. You're done. I've got two cars I want you to weigh in on. Mark, specifically, since you're our 90s guy, our expert here, what about the Plymouth Prowler and the Chevy SSR? Man, it is really hard to set aside the hatred I had for those cars as a kid. <laughs> And I think I was just disappointed. You know, as a kid in the 90s, I didn't appreciate who that vehicle was targeting. It wasn't me. They weren't putting a V8 in it. You know, they were making something that looked cool. It was a nice drive and it was a cruiser. It was very literally a cruising car. But I still have a hard time getting over it. Like the Aztec, that's ironically cool. It's like, it's almost ironically cool, but I don't know. No, I, I... The only time I thought the Prowler was cool was on that episode of Home Improvement, if you remember, where he does a drag race and is nomad against Bob Vila and the Prowler. And I was like, oh, that's yeah. kind of cool. And he got his ass kicked, which was great. <laughs> 
But I, I never understood Prowler's purpose. So what is it pretending to be? Well, the problem is that they stick it as like a 3.5 or 3.6 V6 piddly motor. If you're going to do that, why are you putting that little motor in there? I mean, that didn't make any sense. If you look at the measurement, 3.5, it's actually a pretty healthy size V6, but it was only 215 horsepower. Yeah. It yeah. really had no horsepower. It's taken right out of the LH sedan, which was the Dodge Intrepid, the Chrysler Concorde, the Chrysler LHS, all those front wheel drive family cars that they were building at the time. It was a good motor, but it had no inspirational qualities at all. It was just a stoic V6 that got the job done. And that was the end of it. Known two people who've had those cars. And it's interesting because one is just a bona fide car guy. He just loves cars. Doesn't matter what kind of car you want to talk to him about. He'll love it. He just wants to talk about cars. And he loved that Prowler just because it was so weird. He never really was a hot rodder. That's the one genre he never got into. And of course, the Prowler was trying to be a modern take on what would hot rodder customizer build? How would right. that be done? But it so obviously failed at that. It was a shit hot rod. They made a resto mod hot rod and didn't make it fast. No, it just means fast. they're selling to like the middle-aged Camry buyer who's having a midlife crisis. It's all pants, no trousers. The very definition of the term. It's like it was purposely built to pose. Or do you think it was maybe purposefully built to be a platform for hot rod guys to put something better that's in. an interesting take that seems like a stretch to me i've never seen a prowler that's got like a v8 dumped into it or a hemi stuffed in or anything i don't think they fit. no but an ls fits in all things no but i have seen them get supercharged yeah, and that helps that. them a lot because remember the 3.5 liter even though it was such a pig in its own right it was overly built you know everybody said why did chrysler overbuild that engine well in the back of their mind they had it as a performance engine with a supercharger. That was the whole point. And then ultimately, typical Chrysler, nah, we don't want to do that anymore. And the reason I bring up the Prowler is because there's two offshoots here. Chrysler followed up the, let's call it, failure of the Prowler with the PT Cruiser. We are going to make no excuses for that car whatsoever. But Ford in turn came back with a concept car you can look up online called the Indigo. And it was even yeah. more futuristic than the Prowler, but it's the same idea. It was that sort of T-bucket for the late 90s, early 2000s at the same time they released the GT90 concept was the super futuristic version of the GT40. So there was a little bit of experimentation going on, but at least Ford drew the line in the sand and said, we're going to keep these as concept cars and not go to production to an audience that we don't know is going to buy them. You got to think though, too, if there's one thing Ford is really, really, really good at doing, it's knowing when this ain't going to sell. Eric, you and I had this conversation, I think, privately about Volkswagen building stuff and teasing their customers with it. And Ford does the same thing. They'll build this awesome car, the GT90. Now, ultimately, of course, the GT90 did turn into the Ford GT. But that whole era right there, and you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I wanted to give the Beetle credit for bringing back that sort of retro design. But I'm wondering, did the Prowler beat it to the punch as the retro? I think the Prowler was in production before the Beetle. But the thing is, that whole era right there, there was such 
such a retro thing going on with everybody. GM had the HHR, the Heritage High Roof, which was basically a spinoff of the PT Cruiser, you know, which kind of kicked off the whole thing of, hey, let's bring back that retro 30s car. These were all concept cars. For some reason, they had the gumption to put these things into production. Ford came out with the Thunderbird. They came out with the retro Mustang. They came out with all kinds of their own sort of formula celebrating their heritage. During that time, you saw all these weird little retrospectives coming out of the woodwork from all the manufacturers, it seemed like. I mean, even Audi had their little TT. It looks like somebody smashed a Beetle, but it was cool. Correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but there was no other Audi that looked like that in the past. That was sort of its own kid, but it was based on a retro Beetle. Originally, the intent was for it to be the Carmagia. They were going to come out side by side. There was some politics involved. There's all sorts of mythology behind the design of the TT and stuff like that. But there's also some NSUs, which are part of the four rings of Audi or the auto union, like the Prince and things like that, that the TT kind of harkens back to. So arguments Mm -hmm. could be made that there is a predecessor to the TT. But to your point, it's the sister of the Beetle. So it did take design cues from the 30s or 40s back with NSU, etc. The Bauhaus design, right? It's some classic German design from a previous time. Before we go too far afield, I think it's important to realize how many people loved the PT Cruiser when it came out? Yep. Oh, people were mm-hmm. rabid. They sold that thing at a markup in the first year, and then they were selling it for 150,000 units a year. Now, it is kind of hilarious how it went from like 100,000 units to 20,000 units yes. in one year. It was like overnight, bam. Yeah, they hit a wall. It aged out. I think it's important to realize how popular it was. Did we stumble on number five with factory poser type cars or factory retro, whatever you want to call them? With the Thunderbird, with the Beetle, with the Mustang, with the PT, etc. So I think the Resto Mod cars, or as Dan used to write a series on our website called Retro Relativity, where he talked about the Mini, he talked about the new Fiat 500 and their origins and things like that. I think the Resto Mod cars are kind of like the hot rods. We need to push them to the side because they're not attempting to be anything other than what they used to be. It's a nostalgia play. You want to buy that Fiat 500, you want to buy that Mini Cooper, you want to buy the modern version version of the Beetle. Again, they're not pretending to be anything that they're not, right? It's not a Beetle comes out and says, I'm a Scirocco. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, it's not that sort of thing. So I think they're exempt from this particular discussion. Yeah, some of them don't pretend to be what they're named. They just fail at being it. Oh, there's that too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Before we move on and get deeper into replicas and continue our conversation about superformances and Beck Spiders and things like that, there's another car I found that is a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Is it posing or did the factory copy the poser situation here. And that's the Cizetta Marauder V16. Well, that was nothing more than a Diablo. That was the yeah. original. But it wasn't the Diablo because it was rejected. And then they continued yep. to build it. Chrysler got together with Lamborghini and built the Diablo. If you remember the timeline there, Zampoli, he designed that to be the successor to the Countach because the Countach was such a radical car. Chrysler buys into Lamborghini and says, yeah, you know what? That's a really radical car. We're going to send this back to Detroit. We're going to have our guys at Chrysler kind of refine this. That pissed off Zampoli so badly that he took his design and started his own with the Chisetta Marauder. I don't know what you call that. What the heck is that thing? That's in the catch-all category. Posing is about visuals. This just looks like a Diablo with a 
body kit. So yes. if we're going more towards the Lamborghini posers, I've got one and I think it's modern, but it's the biggest, stinkiest turd of the modern ones. Have you guys heard of the Vader? Oh, yes. I was oh going to bring gosh. that up. Yes. So the Vader, oh my God. I don't know how it's popular. I cannot stand this thing at all, but it's based on <laughs> Infinity G35 Coupe. Yes, exactly. And it's supposed to look like a new Lamborghini and they're at car shows and people are all excited about them. And I just want to kick it. I hate it. You know what's funny about that? They even featured it on the first season of Car Masters with Mark Towley and his team out in Temecula building oh. one of those things. And I was just like, Gross. you're doing what? And apparently Shaquille O'Neal has a bunch of them. So, you know, that makes it cool too. That was in a Batman movie too, wasn't it? Oh no, Christian Bale was in a real one, not a fake one. There was a Middle East supercar that was in a Batman movie that never actually made it to production. Yeah. Greatest product placement ever. It was the villain's car driving. I can't remember what it was in. It looks like the Lexus LF or whatever else whatever that one yeah, is LFA. Yeah. LFA. this is actually the first time i've seen that car okay you guys are probably gonna laugh and say oh it's typical don but i actually kind of like it i think it's kind of a cool looking car the proportions are all wrong it's got the cast and camber of the fast and the furious guys like that are all leaned in oh. on it's just terrible i'm glad jeff went down the route of lamborghini replicas because i found one for you don since we've now oh, crossed God. the threshold have you heard of a group out of the uk called prova which is an Italian word for to try or proof. Those are the coolest cars ever made. Two frame Lamborghini Countach for 20,000. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it will fool just about anybody. Yeah, it makes me wonder how they got away with it. Tantagata didn't stand up with their lawyers and say, excuse me, you can't do that. Because you know, if it were a Ferrari, Ferrari would have been all over them. And I look at something like that and go, yeah, I could own a Lamborghini knockoff for 20 grand. Okay, great. What am I going to power it with? Got to choose an engine. Let's say I'm going to go with a Ford motor or even an LS engine at that point, why wouldn't I just buy a De Tomaso Pantera at that point? Except, is there something to be said about being new versus the De Tomaso? You're going back 40. Well, I mean, the newest De Tomaso you can get your hands on would have been from what, 1987, I think, was the last year? 92, I thought it was what they built those last. Was it 92? GT5, whatever it was. GT5. Fender flares and everything, mm -hmm. you know, all that. Yeah. Made it slower. I mean, very small quantity, but they had the big GT5 kits on them and all that stuff. My dad was a big Pantera fan. I remember listening to a few friendly heated arguments with his friends who were Corvette guys, Porsche guys, or Ferrari Lamborghini guys. I do remember those guys considering the De Tomaso Pantera a poser in the exotic car world. At the end of the day, it's powered by Ford. That's all it is. But it had the body. It had the design. It had the DNA. It just happened to have that Ford engine. But what everybody hated talking about was, okay, let's go back to 1972. The Pantera was position between the Corvette and the Dino. That was the price point. Or if you want to be a little friendlier and a little more accurate, it was the Corvette and the 911S. It was pit right between the two of them. The Dino was a little bit more than the 911S. The beautiful thing about any of them, zero to 60, quarter mile, Pantera blew them all out of the water. Didn't even break a sweat. Top end was arguable because they were right about the same with the 911S, but it was still faster. But was it faster than the Dino, which was a V6 car, which was pretty incredible unto its own self? The point is, when you knew what you were doing with the Pantera, you had an absolute surgical weapon, but it still had that grassroots, blue-collar, redneck Ford 351 Cleveland under the hood, and it couldn't shake that. Is it a poser car, or is it a real performance car? That makes me think of another Italian-built car at the American Powertrains. I think it's called a TC. <laughs> 
That's awesome. I think that's what it was called. By Maserati. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> but William, so let me throw one at you. Don and I were out car week looking at all sorts of fantastic vehicles rolling around. We're in downtown Carmel and rolls by this older gentleman in what I thought was a Ferrari 250 GTO. Oh, him. And Don goes, no, 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 no. Look at the back hatch. Look at that glass. It's all wrong. The Toyota one? It was a Datsun underneath. A Datsun one. 240, yeah. right? And then we saw it later. I took videos of it when the replica shows up to crash the party. I'm wondering, in your opinion, as a Ferrari guy, what do you think of some of those, let's call them replica classic Ferraris? You can't fault someone for wanting to have well, a very small percentage can actually afford the real thing, especially from the Enzo era stuff. Got the millions of dollars to spend on these cars. Everyone's going to have their own opinion. You know, someone's going to be like, ah, that thing's crap. You know, look at he's just a wannabe. It's like, well, the guy only makes, you know, 40, 50 grand a year and he, you know, he wants to have some fun and he builds it himself and see, you can't fault him for that. I mean, I don't hold anything against those guys. You know, obviously trying to have something that they can't get, but in essence, isn't that a form of flattery? Right. You're trying to move something? I met Afshin Benaya, as you know, Eric, and then he turned me on to a guy, I think his name was Peter Jacoby. He originally started with a partial kit car that was then Frankensteined to become what was technically a real Ferrari 250 GT from 1959. He took a partial kit car, got a real Ferrari engine, and then the rest of the parts were all real Ferrari sourced parts, and he built his own Ferrari. And so in that case, it kind of becomes like almost a Frankenstein of all of these thoughts that we're talking yeah. about put together, you know? Now, before William asks you for that guy's phone number, because I know he's, he, that look on William's face is like, <laughs> hey, I could sell that car. I know I could. <laughs> and here you are talking about basically a salad bar Ferrari. And maybe you'll disagree with me here, William, but, you know, I remember back in the 80s and the 70s, well, especially the 80s, you had the Panari movement, the Pontiac Ferrari, where you were turning a Fiero into a 308. And yeah. those were kind of fun cars. You know, if you knew your 308, it's okay. The Panari looked a little goofy. Like I've personally seen in Fiero F40. I don't know, even know what you call that kit. <laughs> the proportions are yeah. completely wrong, but there are some other ones that look really cool. Like there was a Fiero 348 conversion that I've seen. There's a 512 Berlinetta Boxer conversion that actually proportionally looks okay. But I think who made it okay to have a car like that was Ferris Bueller. You know, when that movie came out and they had that California replica, anybody who knew their cars and saw that film knew that's not a real Ferrari, but damn, if it's not nice, that is a really nice car. They built three of them for the film, except for one. One was kind of a basket case. That's the one that went out the window. Yeah. But there were two that were really, really nice. If you ever spend any time in their presence, they're really nice. Oh, they, they are. They really, really are. And oh, you yeah. talk about a guy who, yeah, making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year, he can't have the real thing, but maybe he can swing something like that. I drive one of those in a heartbeat. You don't got to worry about driving it. Got a $10, 12000000 million real fighter. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, screw it. I don't care. I'm going to have some fun and drive the shit out of it. I love that we've targeted on the guy who makes 50 grand a year, this hypothetical reasonable. You can make a million dollars a year and not afford the 250 GT. Like, I don't give a sure. shit. You need intergenerational wealth and you're like, F my grandkids, I'm getting a GTO. 100%. Real California, mint condition. What would that sell for, William? Short wheelbase, long wheelbase. Between the two, because you're going to have a, you know open headlight, closed headlight. You got have all that little nuances. Between 8, 10 million into your you know, high teens, low 
twenties. Wow. You know, it depends. So they're a couple of bucks. You know, they didn't make that many in the first place, but then they only made so many in that smaller essence with like exposed headlights and that. So it gets it down. So it's like, okay, that's the one you want because that's the least amount the ones they made. That's the most desirable. So then it jacks the price up. Mark is correct then. Don't sound surprised, Don. Definitely multi-generational money and F the grandchildren. I'm getting myself a Ferrari. But you sounded way too surprised. I'm correct. Yeah, they're not cheap. You had me up until about 9,000 and I lost interest. (laughs) (laughs) So to be clear, I don't agree on that last assertion though, right? As this generation dies off, don't get me wrong, they're always going to be really expensive, but the net present value of $20 million, I don't think will be there as the generations of people who covet those cars die off. 15, 20 years, it's going to be interesting to see how it works out. It might still be 20 million, but 20 million isn't going to be 20 million 20 years from now. And that's like tongue twister if there ever was one. That's a big thing we need to differentiate is the fact some kids out there that are meant to replicate an existing car are done well, but there are some of them that try and just fail drastically. And those are just eyesores no matter what they do. But some of them that are done well to the untrained eye, they would think it is a Ferrari, Lamborghini or whatever it is driving down the road. But you know, if you really get extreme with it, you start going full neoclassic. Virgil Exner tried to reintroduce the Stutz and Duesenberg during the 1960s. And it was a failed attempt. It was ridiculous. He had these cars that were overpriced, Imperials and Lincolns, I think they were. Again, here we go with, you know, you got the kit car side with the Myers-Manx, you take a VW Beetle and you build yourself a dune buggy. And then you've got the other side, which is Virgil Exner coming out with an Imperial and Lincoln saying, I'm building a new Stutz or I'm building a new Duesenberg. You know, they were $30,000. And then what happens in the Late, late 60s, you had a crazy guy who took a bunch of Pontiacs and turned them into the Stutz Bearcat, which was actually wildly popular, hugely expensive. Elvis owned three of them. You're hitting some really interesting points here, Don, and we have to begin to split hairs because now our definition changes. These aren't necessarily posers and they're not necessarily kit cars either. What you described there with the Lincoln turning into the Duesenberg, that's a replica. And then you're talking about the Stutz. That's a custom coach build from mm-hmm. Carrozzeria Nia yeah. in Italy that built them on top of those G bodies. So now we've taken and expanded this idea out. So we actually have four different swim lanes to operate mm-hmm. in. The poser, it's sort of a catch-all. Like we're really not sure where it belongs. Then you have these replicas. Then you have the kit cars. Then you have these custom coach builders. Right. So I think we have opportunity to investigate all of them as we go along here. What I think is interesting about this particular part of the discussion, and people are like, man, why are we talking about $20 million cars and all this kind of stuff? Because there's a juxtaposition here between different car communities. The Ferrari community, I want it as authentic as possible. I want the rarest one I could find with the weirdest nuance and all this kind of thing. But in the Porsche community, replica flies out of people's mouths like you're ordering a cheeseburger. I got a replica 2.7 RS. I got a replica this. I got a replica that. I got a replica 550. I got a replica Speedster. I hear it all the time when I go to a Porsche club event or I go to a Porsche car show, a Porsche Concours. Is it real or is it a replica? And nobody snubs their nose at somebody that built a 89 911 speedster replica they're like oh that's cool where'd you find the parts can i get those too i want to build one the communities are drastically different when you compare these upper echelons between the ferrari world and the porsche world hang on hang on hang on hang on i think in car guy terms we're conflating replica with clone clone is a specific term which is i'm taking a base model car and i'm making it the up model version 
It's not a replica. Correct. And this is why the Porsche community doesn't care. Because I don't care if you swap out the hood and some headlights and get rid of the safety bumpers and whatever. I can put that shit back on if I want to make it original again. You're not doing anything that I can't undo. Oh, okay. If I want to make it original. But it's all bolting stuff. I mean, Singer, obviously. Oh, okay. The good. I'm glad you went there. Singer obviously is. But for your average RS clone, mm -hmm. it's a clone. You can unscrew those parts and put the original parts back on. But there's one other weird situation that occurred in the 80s and 90s that I was a little bit more intimate being in the five-cylinder Audi world. And there was a company out of the UK called Dialinks. And they would take coupes, regular Audi coupes or Audi Quattros or UR Quattros, and they would cut them. They would shorten them. They would change the rake of the windshield by cutting a 4,000 roof off and putting it on top and making this Frankenstein Audi Sport Quattro. Between you, me, and the fence post, couldn't tell the difference. By the time they were all done, everything was seam welded. Everything was beautiful. They had replacement glass. They had all this stuff. It's almost to the point where it's the opposite of building a stretch limousine where you take a Cadillac, cut it in half, and then add 90 feet of additional body. They went the other way and crushed the tin can. So what category does that type of vehicle fit in? Would that fall in along with all the guys back in the 50s that would chop the tops of their vehicles? I mean, that's the same concept they were doing to short. Yeah, them. but they were making another vehicle from that vehicle in this case they're shortening it to make something the factory actually built that way so is it a replica is it a clone is it a frankenstein what the heck is it but i don't think there's any other community more interested in or guilty of cloning than the mopar community i had a 72 satellite that was dressed up like a roadrunner and that thing could fool a lot of people but it was back in the early 90s which if you go back to the early 90s in your mind you'll remember that clones were very very shunned. Nobody wanted to talk about clones. What, what was the great writer said about the original Ferrari GTO, of which they built 32, of which 3,000 are still in existence today? Well, that was the way it was with the Hemis. For the longest time, you had all these guys falling out of the woodwork with their Hemi Cooters, their Hemi Coronets. Their he My God, everything had a Hemi in it. They only built so many of those back in the day, and yet everyone had one. As you say, there were all these clones, and I agree, they're not really replicas. They're clones. They're tribute cars, as well, there's a fine line there, too, because in some cases, yes, you can build a clone. You can build an M3 clone by doing some bolt-ons. What's the difference between an E36 325 and an E36 M3? Not a whole heck of a lot at the end of the day. The things that make it special are suspension and, yes, the engine is slightly bigger. My point is, to build a 911 RS replica and you have a base 911T, let's say long-nose car and all this kind of stuff, yeah, it's the same base shell, I got to source an engine. I got to source this. I got to source that. I got to do the other thing. If I build a wide body turbo quote unquote clone, that's not a clone. That's a replica. I have to physically manipulate the car to build that out. We had one of those. We bought a 70T that looked like a 78 930. And by all intents and purposes, it would have fooled everybody, but it had a 2.2 and then a 2.7 later. It never had a 3. So everybody who put flared fenders on their 911 made a replica. I mean, because that's the only real body difference is 
you put some flares on it. Come on. Flares do not a replica make. No, but you need the power plant too. You need the transmission. All that stuff was different in a 930. Yeah. If you're going to source an actual 2.7 liter yes. for the real RS. I mean, the motor costs three times as much as your 911T at that point. I think there's a fine line between a Xerox copy and a replica. Clones don't typically source a rare motor that is so much more expensive than the actual car. They would build up the but motor. But then again, I can build a 2.7 with the right jugs and the right stroke and all that kind of stuff out of a 2.2 or a 2.5 or another motor, right? So what makes the 2.7 RS special? It's not the cams. It's not this. It's not that. What is it? It's an appearance package and it came with a 2.7 liter. It was the first one to come with it. They made it so it rusted really easily and that <laughs> saved like 75 pounds. Keep in mind here, we're splitting hair, splitting hair, splitting hair. And now we're splitting hairs over semantics. And I think that's where this specific topic, posers and clones or po whatever the title of this thing was, it really can get ugly because if you really think about the words replica and clone, replica comes from the term replicate, which is to copy. Clone is a much more scientific term, but again, it is a clone of an exact the duplicate. That's why in science, we say we're going to go clone a sheep or we're going to go clone a dog, but we don't say we're going to replicate them. A replicate is a mechanical copy. So we're starting to get tangled up. But when you look at the popularity of the terminology, the Plymouth that I talked about when I was in high school, I was getting kicked out of cars and coffees left, right, and center because the snobbery was so high. They didn't want some, as they called them back then, they called them tribute cars. That was what they were calling them. Clone was just starting to itch its way through the terminology. And I usually had older guys telling me, we don't want tribute cars here. We don't want tribute cars here. So I had to go park on the street. Mark brought us something really important. He mentioned Singer vehicle design. What are they building? Are they building replicas? <laughs> are they building clones? Are they a custom coach builder? What are they doing other than bastardizing 964s and 993s at this point, you know, yeah. and harvesting these cars, they're not building their own car from scratch. They are creating works of art. Nobody can argue that the build quality isn't amazing on a singer, mm -hmm. but what exactly are they doing? They've redefined what cloning or replicating or whatever verb you want to use at this point is. I don't think we can faithfully argue that singer vehicle design is building any sort of a clone or replica or anything. They are doing their own coach derived situation. Look at Celine. Look at Shelby with his Mustangs. They were more modified Mustangs. Singer vehicle design takes it to a whole other level and they're doing their own thing. They have bespoke interiors. They have bespoke paint. They have bespoke little air dams, body kits, etc. So I think really it goes to more of a custom coach situation, not to throw them in the category of Clinet, but it's a much more dedicated effort like a Clinet was. A Clinet was the neoclassic vehicle that kind of redefined how a neoclassic should be. It wasn't a mess. It was a consorted effort of trying to put together, yes, pieces from factory cars, but bring them together and create their own unique situation that will set you back $80,000 in 1977. So Singer, though. And similarly, we brought up Stutz, the ones that Elvis had. It's a very similar situation. You send them to Italy. Italy removes the Pontiac body, removes that interior, does all this magic, and they turn it into a very, very bespoke. Is that what we're calling magic? They were never trying to be bespoke Pontiacs or bespoke right. anything. Singer Vehicle Design, who I understand has been forbidden to use the word Porsche in any of their marketing. They can't call themselves Singer Porsche. That is very frowned upon. <laughs> 
they take it to a whole other level. They will come after you. Trust me. I'm well aware of it. (laughs) Singer is in its own category, doing these hero cars, heritage cars, tribute cars. There's your number five, Eric. It's these reimaginations, right? We're seeing a lot of those these days, too. A clone is not a replica. A clone is a clone. You're moving up the skew. You're moving up the sales scale. So, William, back at you. What do you think about Porsche replicas? Especially when they're done right. I mean, they look great. Again, it goes back to the fact that, say, look what 2.7s go for. Who wants that? And again, do you want to drive it? I mean, guy insurance is going to be out crazy. Hey, I'll build a replica. Say 99% of the people out there really won't know the difference. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, and especially going down the road, it's like, unless you really know your stuff and it's parked sitting there and you start scrutinizing the shit out of it, you're not going to know. And who cares if you're enjoying the car? Do it. Right. I mean, for a fraction of the cost, you have gorgeous looking car and you can make those changes to it and update it. You know, do everything you do. I mean, you got the ones where you could take your mid 70s 911, make it look like the 2.7 and you got the ones where you're backdating them they say you got more modern technology in the car but hey it's looking like the old car so you have all these different avenues you can go with it i have no issue with it whatsoever i mean i think it's fantastic getting a lot of different choices out there for people and gets people working on their cars and having fun with them i'm wondering if at some point going into mark's point that the generations are going to start backing off a little bit of these original cars because they're just so expensive they're too hoity-toity and let's face it there are cars out there from the 90s and the new millennium that offer more performance, more creature comfort, blah, 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 that all of a sudden a real Ferris Bueller Ferrari or even one of the Ferris Bueller replicas, why would I want that? You know, it offers none of the creature comforts of this car. Replicas, you can add power steering, power brakes, et cetera, cup holders, air conditioning, and nobody cares because it's a replica. So I guess what my point is, I'm starting to wonder if the younger generation who seems much more comfort and performance inclined than originality, will these replicas, be them neoclassics, be them 356s, be them Cobras, will they start to go up drastically because this younger generation will start getting its disposable income and they might want a car that's a lot more drivable than a real one. Makes 100% sense and it's right in line with something I was thinking which is to begin to split hairs on what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation which is a Factory 5 Cobra. Somebody mentioned it as a kit car but in reality it's a replica that you assemble yourself. So is it really a kit car at that point because the end result of it is not like a Kelmark G which is a kit you put on top of a Beetle to make it look like a 904, right? That's a kit car. Or even the Caterham, for that matter, you're building it like Legos. You build a Factory 5, you have a Cobra or you have a Daytona Coupe replica when it's all said and done. So I think there's a major distinction there to your point, Don, in the modern way of thinking about a kit car, quote unquote, versus the old ones. I'm remembering specifically one of our old subscribers from back in the day, Ken Miles was his hero. When he was in college, Ken Miles was the man running around with the GT40s and the Cobras, et cetera, kicking everybody's butt. So that was his big hero. So here he is now, millionaire, self-made, and he bought himself a Factory 5 GT40 in the Gulf livery colors, the blue and the and the orange. And I mean, that thing was gorgeous. And so I asked him, I said, you know, you're probably rich enough. You could have afforded a real Gulf GT40. Did you ever think about doing that? And he goes, you know, yes, not to sound unhumble, but I could afford a real one. But he said, Don, when you drive one of those cars and you drive one of these factory fives 
you see why I would never buy an original one. First off, the original ones are much more valuable. They're much harder to insure. And if you get a scratch on one of those things, you're going to go straight to hell. But with my replica, I can show up at Cars and Coffee. I can drive up and down PCH all day long. My insurance company doesn't care because it's a modern car. So right there, there's the guy that I'm leery of, and he's already 70 years old. But you see my point. He's a 70-year-old who decided, yeah, you know what? I could have the original but I'm going to have a lot more fun with a factory five. Maybe this is a crystal ball thing for William. Do we ever think the originals will start to lose their luster because the next generation's thinking, eh, why bother? Too much work. Because a lot of it too is you can go back find those older cars like it's the historical aspect up to it. You know, the story behind it, what made them create that car, you know, and the racing history and everything like that. So it's got all those tangibles to it that really draw you to that car. But I think a lot of these newer kids coming in, they're, they're not so much concerned about the past. You know, they're more concerned about creature comfort. Hey, how fast can the guard go? How cool does it look? Everything like that. What do people think? I think the biggest issue you're going to have going forward, though, with those older cars, who's going to work on them and fix them? Because as those things get older, those people start falling away. It's like, well, okay, I can afford and buy that car for whatever dollars. I live over in Ohio, but the guy to fix it's out in Southern California. So every time something goes wrong, I got to pay three grand to ship it each way. I think that's going to be the biggest drawback because people are going to say, why do I spend all the money, all the headache when doing that? So why not buy a recreation that's got all the newer running gear and like that. And hey, I can work on it myself or I could take it up to the guy around the corner and work on it. You know what's fun about this conversation? Here we are kind of at the midpoint of it. We're all in this sort of lazy river talking about posers and kick cars originally. And now there's suddenly all these tributaries that have emerged from this particular conversation, avenues of vehicles that we haven't investigated before. The picture I have behind me is actually a 308 converted into a 288. That's the Porsche equivalent to me of taking a, a 911 and trying to, but even the 911s are more similar, right? It's the same shell. Maybe they didn't spray it with winterization and they did some other things to lighten it up. It's so similar. You know, we can't conflate the clone conversation. Mark has found the thumb in our hand here, the fifth swim lane. And I want to get to this. These are the reimagined vehicles taking a modern car. They're not necessarily replicas. We're rebuilding old cars from scratch, but they're not the resto mods like the Mini and the Beetle and things like that. There's a couple other things we need to touch on here. And I, I think a few of these hit close to home for a lot of us, movie replicas. We're going to talk about DeLorean time machines here in a minute, Don, so get prepared. We still need to talk a little bit deeper on proper kit cars and then custom coach builders. So let's kind of dive into those topics throughout the rest of the conversation here. So let's start with the Hollywood poser cars. Don, what are your feelings on the time machines as a DeLorean owner? Ah, that's a loaded question. In DeLorean community, that is such a lightning rod of a conversation. Me personally, I think there are too many of them out there and I think they need to stop. I do. Now, you know, I get it. It's a cool car. It made a great movie. And I will always love it for giving the DeLorean a sort of modern cleansing. Because of that movie, all of a sudden, there was a whole new generation who was interested in DeLorean who didn't think about the potential ripoff of the British government. They didn't think about all the drug crap. They didn't think about all the drama that surrounded the DeLorean Motor Company when it was fresh. Is that Marty? Holy, that's a hell of a tattoo. I had to show Marty in front of a DeLorean. <laughs> you have a tattoo of him on your chest? I do at that. Wow. He is fun <laughs> at parties, Don, let me tell you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Okay, so on that note. Things we would have learned at Car Week, all I'm saying. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Wow. So you must be a major Back to the Future fan. I can't even begin to describe. Wow. Why is that? It was my favorite movie 
movie. It was, I think, one of the quintessential movies of the 80s and then the trilogy into the 90s. There's a lot of car movies, obviously, and i hopefully be able to touch on the 928 Tom Cruise drove into the, the lake. Risky business. Weird science. Yes, that's what I was coming back to. Kind of like William was talking about. Like, first of all, who cares if it's real, if it's fake or not? Because a lot of times people can't tell anyways. Look at how many DeLoreans there are out there. People lose their minds when they see these DeLoreans with any sort of anything on them that looks like it's from the movie, let alone one by itself. The value of those is not necessarily just strictly monetary value, but rather kind of more nostalgic. And that's sometimes what ticks the value up, not necessarily like, you know, what the build quality is, if that makes sense. I think that Don's point, even though he reaps the benefit of every time machine that's made, a basic DeLorean's value goes up, right? Because it's almost like losing one of the herd at that point. In their own right, they're creating their own subculture and that's fine. But we don't make the same argument about every 82 to 84 Trans Am that gets turned into kit. One bet. Well, how many of them did they make? <laughs> I mean, they were pumping them out like Twinkies. The funny thing about the 82, which of course, that's what Kit was. Kit was an 82 Trans Am. But of course, to make that show last through 1986, when the show was canceled, they were gathering up every Trans Am they could, every third gen they could get their hands on and turning them into 82s to act like, you know, an 82 Trans Am. The funny thing is 1982 Firebird, all of them, the whole family, there were something like 82,000 of them built that year. For 1983, there were 53,000 of them built. A lot less were built in 83. In 84, it dropped just a little bit more than that. According to DMV records and the insurance something or other, there are still more 83s registered and insured on the road than there are 82s. And the theory is NBC Knight Rider destroyed so many of them that they're just gone. Case in point, their brethren to the 69, 68, and 70 Dodge Charger, there was something to the uh, tune of 13,000 of them destroyed. Duke's a hazard. Yeah. I had a hard time actually comprehending that number. 13,000 Chargers were murdered for that show. I don't know about you, but yeah, I was one of the little 10-year-old brats watching it, cheering it on as it was getting jumped over the river, jumped over the police car, whatever. Hollywood doesn't look at cars as historical or or anything. They are props. Pure, plain, and simple. Mountain Man Dan, how many Fall Guy trucks were destroyed oh, in the making of Fall? I mean, that truck was jumping something every episode. It was just like Kit. Just the amount of height they were doing on the jumps without proper like landing and stuff like that. It was just destroying chassis, and they had to modify so many of the chassis to be able to make the jump so they didn't tumble in the air. It's insane. I mean, you were mentioning with the Chargers. The amount that were destroyed, I'm the type of person being a car guy. My daughter thinks it's crazy. I'll be watching modern movies, and I see a car older car get destroyed in it and i'll tear up a little bit sometimes and she's like dad what is wrong with you i'm like you don't understand that hurts me to see that they should have just used the same mustang they used in the original gone in 60 seconds because they did that whole movie with one car and that car lived on well beyond that movie too right so there's something to be said about that ford but here we are back at replicas and hollywood cars we take the nicholas cage version of gone in 60 seconds everybody wants that gt500 eleanor you know that car was mispainted it was painted incorrectly 
Hopefully you ever hear that story. You've told me, but tell it for the audience. Jeff Bruckheimer, the producer of Gone in 60 Seconds V2, wanted Eleanor to be glossy jet black with metallic silver racing stripes and trim on the side. And the painter misunderstood the instructions and he painted the car that, I think it's called Pepper Gray, I think is the actual color of the car. And he painted the whole car that Pepper Gray and used the jet gloss black striping. And the story is when Bruckheimer and his team showed up to see the car, Bruckheimer got real quiet. He was just looking at it and everybody around him was, oh no, this is not what Mr. B wanted. We are all going to lose our jobs. But I guess he was looking at it and he realized sometimes in mistakes, we find perfection. He decided, no, Eleanor looks absolutely exquisite in this gray. And then he realized too, the new Gone in 60 Seconds was filmed in a lot of dark places at nighttime in Long Beach with very weird lighting. Oh, that pepper gray showed up beautifully. If you remember when they first went to meet her in the parking garage of the International Towers in Long Beach, it was a dimly lit garage and there she was in this glimmering gray. Every car guy in the theater, like Ford or not, I think they saw that and they're just like, ooh, mama. I mean, that is just, wow, that is something else. So yeah, that's the story behind where she got her color from. What I was always amazed with was the level of customization they did to that car. You know, the original Eleanor was a bone stock 73 Mach 1 in mustard yellow with black trim. It didn't get much more 70s. It didn't get much more benign than that Mach 1. And yet it's almost like Bruckheimer said, you know what? She is the queen of the show. She is the star of the show. We have got to make her dress up, put on some lipstick, do her hair. Bam. There it is. The GT500. Yeah. I mean, that car has been a lightning rod too, because Halicki, his wife, basically sues everybody who tries to make an Eleanor replica. I understand she'd actually gone after private people who have taken their own 67 Mustangs and done their own kit and their own version of that Eleanor. She'd actually tried going after them. Pretty scary. So talk about a lightning rod car. But yeah, an amazing car nonetheless. Everybody wanted one. Everybody had to have one. I think still today, those cars are very popular. I want to ask you guys, is there a movie car or Hollywood car or TV show car that you would own? You know, one of these poser cars? The Batmobile. Which one? <laughs> the original. Okay, the 60s, the Futura. Yeah. There's actually a company that builds kits of those. Mike's Car Radio, he did an interview with that guy who builds those as kit cars. And he actually got sued by somebody for some reason. And there was some big thing about it. Yeah, that's a whole subculture unto itself is those Batman kit cars. Funny about the guy that builds those, at least the one company I looked up. So they build the Batman one. They do the Green Hornet as well. So they got a couple of things. And it's interesting, the fact they sell these kits. It's basically a fiberglass shell that he sells for you to mold onto your vehicle. Mark, would you own a Hollywood car? The one that popped up to me when the Viper launched in the 90s, they created a car show to go along with it. Yes, my man. They made an off-road version of that Viper. Yes. I feel like the whole Baja movement, like they've got the Baja 911 and and everything else. Like they made an off-road. So it was, you know, whatever he told the Viper to go to off-road mode. Obviously, that was a different car. I would own the off-road Hollywood first-gen Viper. That would be badass. What you're saying is you need to source a Viper body, and I'll find you a four-wheel drive chassis to sit it on. (laughs) 
<laughs> First of all, he's referring to the Defender, which I have referenced many times on this show. One of my favorite Hollywood cars of all time in a reimagination NBC's Viper, as Mark mentioned, which was Knight Rider, sponsored by the Chrysler Corporation. The Defender is awesome. I'm right there with you, Mark. I would have the street version of the Defender, right, with the three spoke wheels and all things. Gotta go Baja. Huh? You remember there's a hovercraft mode for the Viper Defender as well. So there's different variants, you know, depending <laughs> on what you want to do with it. I mean, I was like 13 years old when that show was on. I don't recall specifically. I do remember when that offered. I own the box set. I watched it during COVID and I wrote an article about it. So there you go. Oh my God. Don, what would you own? I have a guess. I think I know. Which one? Would you do the Coyote? I love the Coyote. I think the Coyote is the coolest little replica or whatever you want to call it. I know, Eric, you're running around redefining everything, so I don't know what to call it anymore. But let's face it, it was a knockoff of the McLaren M8. I did like that car. Yeah, I wouldn't mind having one, especially in a modern version where it's not built on a VW Beetle chassis, but maybe it's built on something a little bit more robust. You know, honestly, there are so many Hollywood cars that I love. It's really hard to pick just one. You know, from the heart-to-heart Mercedes, as benign as that is, God, it just goes on and on. The 18 van was really cool. The Fall Guys truck was really cool. The little boy in me that is still absolutely enamored has still got to be Kit, the original Kit. I mean, it's a Trans Am. We all know I love Trans Ams, but the original Kit was just so slick. I mean, here was a car who wasn't obnoxious. It was just a basic black. Black Trans Am. There was no striping. It was just sliding through traffic. And it, you know, could do 364 miles per hour. And I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, and it had an injector seat in it. I don't think it would do hover mode. If I could live in fantasy land, I would love to have Kit. What was it they said in uh, Corvette Summer about the Van Nessa? Special cars for special people. <laughs> I knew Mountain Man Van would like that one. You know? <laughs> and that's a great Hollywood van. And so was that Corvette. And I'm yes. sorry, I'm in the minority with that Corvette, but I liked it better in the gold than in that ridiculous red. Luke Skywalker did well. He did. That was a terrible Datsun. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think it'd at least be a Cadillac. Now we're going to cross that threshold into custom coach building, which is not a new concept by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, this was happening back in the days, 1920s on the Packards. The company LeBaron was rebodying Packards way back then. And many other coach builders after that, where they would take chassis or reimagine or do all these kinds of things. And so that has lasted the test of time. And we're, we're going to talk about some of the brands that were prolific, especially in the 80s and 90s here in a moment. Part of the reason this also hits a little close to home for me is I don't even know how to classify one of my own vehicles. It was built when I was a kid by my dad and it's a Shallon 914. It's a wide body slant nose. So the question I've always had, is it a poser or was it just an opportunity to stuff a lot of rubber under a 914? I'm going to make a nuanced statement. The time it was built, it was a poser mobile. I'm sorry. I hate to say that. (laughs) (laughs) In no way, shape, or form is that kit designed to make the 914 look like a 944, and in no way was it ever marketed to replace a 911 and say, oh, you can buy a slant-nose 914 to be a slant-nose 911. It doesn't make any sense. I always felt like the car was sort of ambiguous, and I understood why my dad built it because of what he wanted to do with the car from a performance perspective. It was wider than a 914 6GT replica or clone because those you can only stuff a certain amount of tire under there. 
first. So he went for the biggest, widest kid he could find. And that's what I ended up with. So what is it? Is that a custom coach build then where all the original panels are gone except for the doors and one of the hoods? Having said that, it was built for the right reasons. They wanted the performance. They wanted to do something with a platform they knew they could get a lot out of. And they didn't give a shit what people thought about it. But your general car guy at the time, seeing a flared fendered slant nose 914, said that guy bought the cheapest Porsche he could find and then spent a ton of money on it to make it look cool. You know that he didn't do that. He bought the best mid-engine German platform he could find to make a fast sports car that had a ton of grip and would be amazing at low speed. But that's what the perception not being reality in this instance. I think as it's aged like a fine wine, it's just cool. Well, that's good because when I show up cars and coffee with it when it's done, that's what I'm hoping for is that (laughs) first they're going to go, what the hell is that? But on the same token, they won't turn their nose to it because at one point I did consider selling it. For $5. I mean, you you can't sell that yet. You got to finish it. Well, exactly. But Don, to your point about snobbery, I approached the 914 community and they're like, nobody wants that thing. Why would I bother with a wide body slant nose 914? And I'm like, "Uh, because it exists. I've seen other people on Instagram that have done really cool things with them and made modifications on top of the mods they're already made. And, you know, that's inspiring. That's pretty cool. So I fall into that small section of this particular conversation. You know, like I said, it hits close to home. What is that? What the hell is it, Don? That is the Cadillac Seville Opera for 1978, ladies and gentlemen. This is the opulent car that you pay $25,000 on top of the cost of the Seville itself to create a bespoke. It's just funny because you talked about, you know, shortening the car. And that's exactly what these guys did. They took a Seville, they cut it in half, they turned it into a two-door and literally a two-seater. And they had this crazy Seville. Now, the funny thing about these, those cars actually sell for a lot of money. I'm blown away by what those operas actually bring in. I saw one a while ago. This one right here, the black one I just showed you is a Schmidt. I think the one that I last saw was like $43,000. And I thought, really? forty-three grand for that? So somebody's actually paying pretty good sized money. But compared to some of the other cars we've talked about, what should I buy? Forty-three grand is still below our initial threshold of 50 k Because most cars nowadays, if you're not paying 50 grand to get into them, what are you doing, right? Yeah. If you want to show up with something different, a shortened caddy, that could be kind of fun. Although those doors look like they're off a Chevette. That looks hard to get in and out of. I just want you to see my favorite one of the group is this one here. This is the Pimp Daddy Special. Oh, oh yeah. Goodness. That's got a Stutz front your end. Your upper lights, your two-tone paint. You, you know, got like Mercedes tri-bar headlights. I don't know about you, but I definitely hear the theme song to Shaft in my head. <laughs> yes. I feel like going disco dancing. I'm going to put my collar up for that one. That is my collar up car right there. See? When they bought that Cadillac, they sent it off to another company to do it. Certain Mm -hmm. companies would do that so the manufacturer wouldn't honor a warranty. But I know with GM, they had agreements with like Choo Choo Customs was one of the companies out of Tennessee. And there were a couple other ones that worked out some agreement with the manufacturer where they would keep the factory warranty. Choo Choo Customs did a lot in the trucks and the vans and stuff like that where like the vans, they would extend the top to be higher, add the TVs in to them and then even with the trucks crew cabs for the square bodies they did a fold down back seat that became a bed and things like that there were many other companies that did that but does that make them kit or something i think those are still in the realm of conversion van and conversion truck Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff but those are cool and they're sought after yeah Yeah, and i think honestly your conversion van i think your audi and this cadillac i mean they kind of fall in that same category because you're severely customizing it it's a company that is focusing its efforts on creating this 
Audi or creating this Cadillac or creating this pickup truck. It is a custom conversion. It's just, you know, you got a lot more flexibility with a pickup or a van because they're so damn big. You can do almost anything you want with those things. Again, look at Vanessa. You know, Vanessa was a really cool van. It really was. And that was right there at the kind of the zenith of the custom van era, that, that 1970s era. Right around 78, it started to kind of peak out. And then toward the 80s, it started kind of going downhill. But yeah, it, it is a custom situation. And again, does it kind of overlap with what we're talking about with those guys building the Dynacore Broncos, Dynacore, whatever, and Singer? who is obviously the apex of the entire movement. The companies like Choo Choo, they focus on like the creature comfort type things. Carol Shebby, he focused on the performance side of the things. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other companies that focus on other aspects, but there were the two key ones like performance or creature comforts. And then enter 1984 through like the 2000s. And you have companies like Don has mentioned before, Trasco and Zbaro on the, on the Mercedes side. You've got Gimbala on the Porsche side. You've got all mm-hmm. these other companies that are taking a road car and turning it into something else. You saw all sorts of kits from all sorts of people. And I'm not talking bolting on Testarossa flares on a Fiero. I'm talking about taking a 911 and making it look like a 928. You know, those were some of the Gambala designs that I never understood. But Mm -hmm. looking back now, you're kind of like, well, that's just different enough that it's interesting, but it's not what Singer's doing. Singer's saying, I'm going to make you the best 1972 911 S ever created period full stop and then you've got tut hill and you got a couple other folks trying to do the same thing and that's fine they're all kind of playing from the same sheet music but these extremists do they still exist in the modern times are we seeing the next chisetta or the next vector or the next whatever built on something else just crazy out of the box like we saw in the 80s and 90s and what do we think about some of these 80s and 90s cars mark that have now become very collectible so keeping thematically along you know this poser mobile theme of the show I think there are some 80s examples. I struggle more with the 90s examples that may be my own 40-year-old man prejudice. Our 30-year-old buyer, I might think some of that stuff was just cool because they didn't live that decade like I did. I struggle to get there. AMG, Gambala, I mean, all of that's just cool. It's just cool. It's all low volume. And- that's a wide body bends, baby. That's awesome. Low volume and cool. Come on, the 80s. Wall Street, lots of cocaine, Miami. And jackknife flares. I mean. The people who bought it weren't cool. The people who <laughs> bought it were lame. The car was cool. <laughs> Mark, by the way, has one of my dream cars behind him. I know, right? But for a long time, that was a poser mobile. The 6 Series? Because it depreciated a lot, oh. and a lot of people picked it up, and they didn't take care of them. It's not one today, but in 2000, it was. Mark brings up a good point. Is the Lincoln Mark Eight the banker's hot rod, posing to be an M6, or is the M6 trying to be the Lincoln? No. Oh. No, because the M6 came out way before, before. Mark Eight. If you want to pit the 6 Series with any Lincoln, it's got to go up against the Mark Seven. And if you read the advertising from the day, Mark 7 made no bones about it. It had one target in mind, the 500 and the 560 SEC. They were going after that car hardcore. And when you compare the two, 
holy cow. I mean, it was really funny to read the advertising, but they were neck and neck. The 500, for example, you had the five liter engine. Well, so too did the Mark 7. There was something about the way the doors sealed into the roof of the Mark 7. The 560 had the window, the glass that sealed up into the rubber. There were all these comparisons. You had four bucket seats, you had power everything. They were really, really neck and neck. But yeah, Mark 7, that would be your target. I think that's kind of why I always like the 6 Series, because obviously it's the grandson of chassis E3, and that would have been the 2800 CSI and the 3.0 and the Batmobile cars, etc. And I always looked at those cars as so inimitable. They were their own animal. There was nothing else like them on the road. Yes, you had Mercedes with their SE coupes, etc., but those were big, grand touring coupes. You didn't fantasize about cutting through a Swiss canyon in one of those, but the E3, you did. They were sporty, they handled, and yet they were still elegant. You had no problem pulling into any casino in Monaco and having a good time and looking the part. I can internalize the dichotomy. I am lame. I have a cool car. Well, just like the Benz that Don showed us, that is a symbol of the 80s. If you could put jackknife flares on a square-bodied car with round headlights, that was the way to go. I mean, you can count them all. The UR Quattro, the RX-7, the 944, the M3, the 190E, that Benz that he just showed us there, which is a like a 460 SEC or something like that. I mean, there were countless cars. It's like, if you could bolt on a wide-body kit in the 80s, that was legit. That was awesome. But the the question becomes, is that the tuner world or is that custom coach building? <laughs> oh, now listen, God. pal, oh, you want to sit there and talk about custom Mercedes, that's fine. But you're in my town now, Miami, baby. And there ain't nothing better than a white Testarossa flying up your butt. You understand what I'm saying? So you want to come here and deal drugs? I'm the buy to talk to, okay? <laughs> Bring it. Imbala, AMG, I got them all right here. See, and I feel like companies like Zender and Rieger and Camay and others that we've mentioned before, they sold those kits, quote unquote, so you could take your stock Scirocco or take your Benz or take your BMW and make it look like something else. That was sort of take it to your local body guy or you were doing the body work, Bondo and everything in your driveway to realize this vision that you saw in a catalog. But that to me isn't custom coach building like Gambala was doing and some of the other people like Singer is doing now where they're taking the car apart and saying, this is what I think it should look like. Maybe the last person to do that sort of stuff, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, might have been Chip Foose, where he was really taking cars apart in the 2000s and saying, this is what I feel like they should look like. Yeah, he did a lot of rendering with his drawings of what he imagined it should have looked like. But also building some of those cars, too, to yeah. say, here they are. Look at the rear fenders on that thing. Gull-winged Mercedes. The original E-Class. Look at the rear wing. You got the gull-wing doors. This is the ultimate in, I have more money than God, and I'm willing to spend it to prove it to you. They wouldn't have started with an E-Class if they had more money. That's a Posemobile right there. But AMG never would have made that. <laughs> No, AMG didn't make that. And actually, the funny thing about those cars, they were so bent on themselves building the best of the best of the best. They were really the singer before they were singers. I would venture to say these are the cars that inspired the guy who founded Singer. Because here you've got this gullwing creation. And whether we're talking about the coupe gullwing or we're just talking about their standard issue sedan, what they would do is in the day of the 500 SEL and the 500 SEC, they doubled it. They had their own badge and they called it the one 
1000 SEL and the 1000 SEC. These cars had televisions, they had phones, they had wine chillers. You let your wildest imagination go crazy. And that's what these guys would do for that car. And literally, you're talking 150 to $200,000 above the price of the standard Mercedes. What did a 500 SEL cost in 1985? We've got to be talking 60000 I would venture to say. Yeah, 60 to 70 grand. So let's say 60. And now you're going to send it off to this guy who's going to hack it up, do all this crazy stuff to it. And you're going to go pay him 150000 to $200,000 more on top of that. Mercedes wanted nothing to do with them when that guy got through with it. You had no warranty. You had nobody in the neighborhood who could fix this thing because it was a modern Mercedes and nobody was really working on those things. Why don't you take it to the dealer? So the dealer would fix the mechanicals if he didn't mess with that stuff. But all the electrical stuff, that TV you just put in there, that stereo system, the telephone, I mean, all that stuff rendered that car almost useless. I told you, Eric, we got to have him on your show. That friend of mine, Sean, he restores these things. He has 16 or 17 or something like that all to himself. And now he's sourcing them and building them for people. He says that the people who love these are not only guys in their 40s like us, but the younger kids who maybe they saw that old TV show Miami Vice with dad and they thought, man, that drug dealer's Mercedes is really cool. I'd love to have one of those someday. Well, we're in the same boat because, you know, we grew up watching Miami Vice and we either fell in love with the Ferrari or we fell in love with the Mercedes or we fell in love with both. And now you got guys like Sean who are out there actually making this dream come true. And now you got the 20 something year olds who are seeing the same thing. It's almost like a rebirth of interest in that car. Mark said it's hard to kind of identify some of these maybe more custom coach builders in the later times, kind of thinking past the 80s. And to your point, Don, they were sort of at their apex or at their zenith there in the 80s. Everybody seemed to be coming up with a new way to reimagine these vehicles, whether it was bolt-on body kits or like that Mercedes where it's chopped up and changed and wide-bodied and gull-winged and all that kind of stuff. As I was searching through this stuff, there's a name that popped up and I know Dan's familiar with these. Based out of the Northeast, the Smith Ute conversions for the Volkswagen Mark IV platforms and Audis where you can turn a Beetle into a pickup truck. Yep. And it's not for everybody, but if you want something different... I disagree with the not pretty because done properly, they look good. What planet are you on? He's on the mountain man planet. Do what you will, but maybe it's because I grew up riding around in El Camino. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I get the whole like Jetta wagon conversion because it sort of looks like the rabbit caddy. Like that's the one that makes the most sense. Then again, I've seen a couple up close and you're just sort of like, you know, to Jeff's point earlier about the Vader, like some of the stuff is just slightly off and you're like, what S10 did they borrow this from to make the mold doesn't really follow the body lines. The other one that I think Don might be familiar with, and they're still in business today, it's a Dutch company called Burton. We actually talked about them many drive-throughs ago because one of their cars came up for sale in RM Sotheby's auction and they make these 1920s and 1930s inspired roadsters on top of all things a Citroën Dos Chevaux. Every one of them I've seen, they're all the cream family of color, tan, beige, khaki, whatever you want to call it. You know, it makes it a little less attractive. I'd love to see them in different colors. Are they changing the motor on that thing? Ah, that I don't know. I didn't look that hard because I just read Dos Chevaux and I couldn't stop laughing. I mean, it was a dosha got 25 horsepower, 30. 2CV, 
Two horses, <laughs> two horsepower. I guess if there's a market, there's people out there buying them, right? Now, the one at Sotheby's sold for quite a bit, which I was kind of shocked. I mean, to see it in the five figures, but they don't make that many of them. So I guess it's unique enough. There's an audience for it. Can't see myself driving one, though. That's for sure. No, it's no, no. There's always a market for something. Someone's going to buy it. It just depends on how many. And what are you going to do with it? It kind of goes back to, I think it was Dyer saying, you know, about the prowlers. The guy was just a car person, but he just thought it was weird. So he bought it. Probably didn't drive it hardly at all. Just sat there, looked at it, and got rid of it a couple years later because he got what he wanted out of it. That's kind of one of those things. Like, you buy it, just, hey, it's weird. I think it's kind of cool at that moment. A year or two later, like, why the hell did I buy this? And you get rid of it. Let's wrap out our thought here on kit cars a little bit. And I want to throw a couple at you that I was surprised were kit cars. And another one many of you might have forgotten about, but was reviewed on Motor Week. So I'm going to start with that one. Something known as the Maxton Roller Skate. You guys remember that? Mm, yep. So that was built on top of a Miata, which at the time was brand new. NA and NB Miatas were the hot thing then as they are today. So the Maxton Roller Skate was designed to basically be a modern Austin Healey. I thought those were super cool. And I remember John Davis talking about them and then testing them on the show and showing how great of a performer they were. I don't know how you could be disappointed with anything that was built on a Miata chassis, which made me wonder why aren't there more kit or replicas or conversions or clones or whatever we're calling them built on top of Miatas. And the only thing that I could find was something called the Bauer Catfish based on an Miata, but there's not much else out there. I, I hate to say it, it's kind of weird looking, but I like the idea at the end of the day. Another one that we've seen at track days more than once, and it's not the Ariel Atom, which you would think is a kit car. Those are actually produced and you can buy and you can rent and all that, is the Exomotive Exoset. It's actually mm -hmm. sold and distributed as a kit car. Pick your power plant, whether it's Mazda, Honda, or otherwise, and you've got this Ariel Atom-like vehicle that you can then tool around with, make road legal, and it's similar to a Caterham Super 7. And the last one, the one that was really surprising, is probably my top pick for if I had to buy a kit car, which we'll do a lightning round later, is the Ultima GTR. That was sold as a kit car. Don and I actually just saw one recently at Car Week. It was for sale at the Mecham auction at Monterey Motorsports Festival. And again, seeing that, it's like street legal, kind of miniature 962 LMP1 prototype race car with an American power plant, you know, whether it's Chevy Buick or otherwise in the back, why not? I think they're super cool and they're actually quite affordable at less than $30,000, if I remember correctly. I mean, granted, you got a source of power plant, but that's still pretty good for something that's basically a full-blown race car. If you know how to set your car up and build it right with the right suspension and everything on it, build it up. Those things are actually really fast and handle phenomenal. Structure itself, the chassis is very, very well constructed and the engineering into it just bodes well for putting all the right parts on there. And I've never driven one, been in one, but everything I've read about it, if it's done right, they're phenomenal cars. And to your point, very inexpensive. Did anybody else come across any, what they thought were kind of cool kit cars, things that maybe people should research, dive into a little bit more? I mean, all of the cars that we've mentioned so far that are kits, I found none of them really topple the scale past maybe $40,000. Even the Raider, some of the other stuff, they're all very inexpensive. Now, granted, in some cases, you have to source the donor vehicle to start with, but how much is a Nissan 350Z these days? It's 20 years old. You have to come down to the simple fact, are you going to go buy the car like we were talking about earlier that's $10 million and have a museum piece that you get to look at, but you don't get to take out and enjoy? Or are you going to buy that kit car for a fraction of the price and take it out and run it down them windy roads, let the wind blow through your hair and enjoy it for what it's meant to be? Cars are not supposed to be museum pieces. They're supposed to be driven and enjoyed. So that's the most important thing to me is it could be something I look at and don't understand at all, but 
if you enjoy driving it, have at it. There's a lot of cool cars out there you can copy or replicate or clone. Do it. You know, you go back into the 20s, 30s, 40s. There's a lot of cool things you can do. It's all personal choice, I guess. And I think they're putting it on a cheap-ass chassis. And that's why it always started with the Beatles, because it was a cheap car. It's a cheap thing to start with. The premise basis behind a kit car is to have something that you can build very inexpensively. What's inexpensive that I can start with? It's my base, my frame and that, my chassis. Okay, what can I slap on top of that, you know, without having to get serious about stretching the frame or doing anything like that, getting really nuts. I would say cost prohibitive in regards to what you want to be able to do. And you know, William, I think you just stitched up this whole episode for us. Realistically, if you're trying to have your fantasy car, your supercar, your hypercar, and you want to go out there and be carefree about somebody putting a dent in it or whatever, maybe a kit car is the option because they are inexpensive. They're built on a car that you can maintain yourself. Maybe it's something you can put together for yourself. Our initial question of, would you rather have the real one goes back to what you've been saying all along is what do you want to do with this thing and how much do you really want to spend at the end of the day i don't know about everyone else but the one thing when i go to cars and coffees you know car shows and that and i see one there my first question though is the owner says did you build this oh yeah i built everything like that then you have the appreciation for it but it says oh i bought it then it's kind of like, eh, all right i appreciate it more if the person that has it they're the one that built it they put their blood sweat and tears and their money and everything into it and they built it how they wanted it and that way when they die they have no one to blame but themselves. Exactly. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, Mark, normally we would do a lightning round and choose from this plethora of cars that we've thrown out for our audience. I think in this case, we're probably going to leave them with some food for thought, some things to chew on, some additional cars to look at in our show notes. But from a financial perspective, why don't you take us home? Why don't you tell us, is this a feasible route for people to go if they're not really willing to break the bank? Yeah, I mean, my personal take on it would be to do something that falls into the category of something that is just unrealistic, in no way attainable for you in your lifetime. That's my own take on it, right? So if you're doing the Factory 5 clone of the GT40 Coupe or even a Cobra, obviously an original Cobra is worth a fortune. So that makes sense. It's like, don't do a Volkswagen Bug version of a 911. Oh, the 912. <laughs> But the flip side of this, I would say, is given electrification and, you know, the rate at which kids are getting driver's licenses and how few of them actually get them and how old they are by the time they get driver's licenses and all those statistics are well published and it's completely tanked. Anybody that likes cars, I don't care if you're the douchiest Gallardo driver on the planet. You like cars. I like cars. We like cars together. Great. Cool. You can drive whatever you want if it makes you happy. I almost think if I could put a pin on this episode, I don't think Poser exists anymore because the car itself is under such threat that if you enjoy your vehicle, it makes you feel good to drive it, then I like you. Cool. You have a vehicle and you enjoy driving it. It's a hobby. You have a hobby with four tires and I have a hobby with four tires. And I like that guy. Here, here. Amen. Yeah. I 100% second Mark's idea there. I think if you're into any cars, whether you got it as a hand-me-down or if you paid 60 grand for something that someone else did, we all have our opinions on stuff. But at the end of the day, it's all, like Mark said, part of the same love, part of the same community. And yeah, there are niche little clubs and different things like that. Just like he was saying, I have respect for you if you're in the game at all. 
not just in the car world, but I've noticed it a lot in the motorcycle community to where years ago it was like Harley guys used to look down on guys that didn't ride Harleys. And now it's like, if you're on two wheels, come ride with us. It doesn't matter anymore because it's trying to keep the community of motorsports alive and it's growing across the spectrum with all shapes and forms. Yeah, I chime in with everybody else here. If you're enjoying it, you're having fun. Jeff said it well, we all have our opinions. We tend to side with those opinions. Chrysler TC is the best. Uh, then, hey, you know, that's, that's all you got to say right there you know chrysler tc rules and that's the end of it i'm thinking to myself an old movie 1984 85 83 revenge of the nerds think about it back then the nerds were the computer geeks and they were outcasts and they were morons and you know if you wanted to be somebody well you were a football jock or you were a baseball star or you were something like that might have time to change because the computer guys have become the mainstream very much so similarly in the car community dan said it well with the motorcycle community man if you didn't have a Harley, God, if you had a Japanese bike, <laughs> you better just run for cover because that doesn't sell around here. Those days are gone. Just different generations have grown up with different, you know, we were exposed to the Honda generation. So we grew up actually admiring what Honda put out there. And holy cow, they're putting out 145 horsepower in 1.5 liters. That's absolute insanity. So we began to appreciate those cars. Yeah, I, I think the poser mantra, I think think it's pretty well dead now but it doesn't mean we can't have fun and dress up like posers and still make outcasts of ourselves right definitely so brad did we fulfill the agenda do you feel better about kick cars replicas clones insert your favorite adjective here well first i want to say i'm going to take an opposite take than everybody here if you are doing a kick car and you can't afford the original you suck i hate you i don't want to be your friend it's the original or nothing at all <laughs> <laughs> wow the gauntlet thrown down i mean that, that of course i'm kidding no i i second everything that everybody said i say though that there are still posers but the posers aren't who you think the posers aren't the drivers the posers are the manufacturers themselves the m sport the s line the amg inspired the lexus f sport all that shit the badge engineering that we've talked about before and ad nauseum and other episodes that's posing it's the manufacturers yeah. that are enabling the posers and then as far as kit cars and stuff i'm not big on the ones where you cut up another car to make it be something else especially the old kit cars that are built on beetles and, and things like that or the old fieros i'm now trying to do mental math to see if i fit in a prova countach because i'm ready to buy one at 20 grand it's a bargain <laughs> 20 grand you source an ls motor for less than a thousand bucks and then you're off to the races literally and a car that's going to turn heads and people aren't going to know the difference and that's the yeah. beauty with some of this stuff and if you don't stop you don't have to answer any questions there you go there you go I saw a Kuntosh today on the highway. It was amazing. Exactly. Ah! You just made that kid's day. Yeah. You're all over Instagram. And with that one, you can drive all over and you don't have to worry about breaking down after like 50 miles. True. <laughs> <laughs> and on that. Bring your garage or collection to the next level with Don over at GaragestyleMagazine.com. If you want to add a classic Ferrari or Porsche to your collection, reach out to William at www.ExoticCarMarketplace.com. You can touch base with Jeff at DarksideSmiley on Instagram, and you're guaranteed to catch Mark and Mountain Man Dan on another upcoming episode of Break Fix. Thanks again to our panel for another great What Should I Buy debate. We often joke that we never come to a consensus on any of these What Should I Buy debates, but this one 
was extremely challenging. So my vote is, if you're into these, whether it's kit cars, clones, replicas, recreations, custom coach builds, or otherwise, I wouldn't turn my nose at any of them. Go for a drive in them, see how they feel. That experience, it might change your opinion about what they are compared to what they look like. This is an untapped part of the market that I think needs to be brought under the microscope a little bit more closely to investigate some of the jewels that are hidden out there, maybe buried in someone's garage, belong to your dad, and it's been sitting around, you don't really know what to do with it. Get these kit cars out there to everybody's point and drive them and enjoy them for what they were intended to be, cars. And if they turn ahead or two or they spark a conversation at the next Cars and Coffee, well, why not? hope you enjoyed another awesome episode of Brake Fix Podcast brought to you by Grand Tory Motorsports. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or get involved, be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Grand Touring Motorsports. And if you'd like to learn more about the content of this episode, be sure to check out the follow-on article at gtmotorsports.org. We remain a commercial-free and no annual fees organization through our sponsors, but also through the generous support of our fans, families, and friends through Patreon. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can get access to more behind-the-scenes action, additional pit stop minisodes, and other VIP goodies, as well as keeping our team of creators fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gumby Bears, and Monster. So consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without you, none of this would be possible.